0: Well, welcome, everyone, to Calvary Monument Bible Church. It's so good to be together with you. Happy Father's Day to everyone. Uh, last week, I never turned my remote on. So remember how it wasn't working and I was having trouble with it. Afterwards, I was informed that I didn't turn it on. This week, it's on. So, <laughs> we have a memory verse for the month of June. It's from the Gospel of John. It's actually from the chapter... That we're going to be camping in today. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the scriptures. John chapter 3. Let's go ahead and say it together. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. John 3, 7. Yes, well, as I said, happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are in the room. There's a picture that is etched in my mind that... My father has, and I believe I have a copy of it as well, in our homes. One of the earliest memories that I have with my father. He was doing a project on the roof of the house that we lived in at the time in Quarryville. And I was on the roof with him, with my little Tykes hammer and and all of my garb on to help him on the roof. And it was... A reminder, it came to my mind this week because I was thinking about Father's Day and I was thinking about uh, the father figures in our life that have great influence, and I was thinking a lot about Nicodemus. And you know, we, by our very nature, are a people who like to build and who like to achieve. And we like to build structures. We like to build systems. Some of us build businesses and organizations. We live in a culture that celebrates attaining and achieving and striving and gaining. And so oftentimes we, by our own hands, create the things that we want for ourselves and for others. And within these systems, we have been conditioned to believe that somehow we can know enough, we can do enough, we can be enough, we can Make enough to make it in this world. All that's needed, as many of the father figures in our lives have communicated to us over the years, is a lot of hard work and ingenuity, and we'll be successful. And you know, at its core, it's a message that when it comes to the things in this world that matters most, is somewhat if not altogether, meaningless. Hard to believe, but a reality that Jesus confronts Nicodemus with today in the scriptures. Our belonging to a system, religious or otherwise, is of no eternal value. And again, we find ourselves in a place where we're unable to escape the desperate reality that now, no matter how hard we try, we simply are unable to save ourselves. When it comes to salvation, hard work and ingenuity on our own part mean nothing. And it's difficult. That's difficult to hear, to receive, and to practice. To practice and to think that our own efforts are not enough, that we can't know enough, and we can't be enough, and we can't attain enough or achieve enough for anything that's of any real eternal value. And you know, if that creates a little tension inside, that, that's scary. That's a little scary. And if we're honest, it it scares us. It unsettles us and disrupts us a bit. And our response often to fear is to, what, build bigger. We can do it, right? It's the story of the Babylonians, the Tower of Babel. We can build it. We can build it all the way up to the heavens. Stronger walls for a greater sense of self-preservation seeking to acquire larger amounts of knowledge to cover the inabilities and the inadequacies that are exposed. And these behaviors, they indeed provide a sense of security and belonging in this world that, again, are false and fleeting. And we're going to meet a man in our text today who has built for himself quite an empire, A man who truly believed that by his own effort, by his own work, by his own consistent ability, that he could do enough, that he could live in a way that would be good enough to merit and attain his salvation. This man's name is Nicodemus, and he has found order in what he thinks are the secure and safe structures of pharisaical judaism these are structures which jesus has absolutely upended nicodemus is in the scriptures because he is a mirror reflecting back to us i know i've shared this uh with you before and when we come to the scriptures and we meet these different characters that we find in the Bible, our response to them isn't supposed to be, thank you, Lord, that I am not like that guy. Rather, our response should be, Father, show me. Show me where. Show me how. Change me. Correct me. Help me see where like Nicodemus, I too fall short and am relying on my own efforts my own ways of thinking, my own behaviors, to merit things which you have promised to give me freely through Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn them. You can turn them on or you can open them up to the Gospel of John. We're going to begin in verse 23 of chapter 2 today as we explore this encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus. And before we dive into the Scriptures... Let's pray and ask God to guide our time of study together. Father, messages like these, encounters like these in the scriptures, have a way of causing within ourselves some fear and some disruption. Lord, it's largely because you've placed us in a culture, in a world that spends most of its time and energies teaching us that we can do enough. We can somehow be good enough. And the encounter of your son Jesus with Nicodemus reminds us that we can't. And that's hard. But you are. You are enough. You've been good enough for us. And Lord, every once in a while, we need to come to these texts to be confronted again with our own sense of great need and the truth of our own inadequacy so that we can be reminded of Jesus, of his ability, of the work that he did, and of how it is complete and enough and everything that we need. So, Lord, as we dive into the text today and as we look at your word and unpack it together, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus as we opened our service with today, that we would turn our eyes towards him and that in him and through him alone, that our sense of identity and belonging to you would be fixed and secure, that we could grab hold of the truth of eternal life that we've been given, the gift That you freely give to those who believe. Lord, help us to leave here holding on to that hope. To be brave and courageous enough to live by faith. Motivated by love. In this world that you've placed us in. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin in John chapter 2 because the last few verses of John chapter 2 build uh, one of my favorite bridges of transition between chapters of the Bible in John chapter 2 to John chapter 3. So let's look at these last few verses of John chapter 2. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his own part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. The influence of Jesus' ministry Is growing. It's very early on in his life and ministry. He's performing miracles. Each one of them is carrying a hint or a clue related to his identity as the Messiah. And you can go back into the earlier parts of chapter 2 and you can see these miracles. And what's happening is people are starting to hear and they're starting to believe, and there's a stirring. And Jesus, on his part, he is not letting on that he is Yeshua. He's not letting on that he is the promised Messiah. Directly stating this would have resulted in an even earlier arrest, conviction, and end his earthly ministry. So the scriptures say he does not entrust or disclose himself for anyone, for he knew what was in all people. As the one who was with God from the beginning, Jesus knew perfectly both the evil that lurked within the hearts of humanity and the potential for goodness that we carry as image bearers of our Creator. And the next few chapters of the Gospel of John illustrate for us how perfectly acquainted with humanity Jesus was. First, in chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus. Jesus knows him perfectly. He knows what's in Nicodemus' heart. Then you move to chapter 4, and he meets a Samaritan woman whom he also knows perfectly. And as the gospel unfolds, each encounter reveals that Jesus knows what John's gospel says he knows. He knows humanity. In each of these encounters, Jesus is demonstrating both of his perfect knowledge and his perfect love of the Father and the people that the Father had given to him. Jesus was influential enough at this point in his ministry that the religious leaders had started to take notice regarding the growing popularity of his teachings and the signs and the wonders that he was doing. And as we move into chapter 3, we find a Pharisee who is in peril. Nicodemus is a curious man. He's a curious man who's having a crisis of faith. He's a man who's intrigued by Jesus. He's sincere in seeking answers to his questions. In this way, he is set apart from many of the Pharisees who Jesus is going to later condemn. Somehow, Nicodemus, even in his high-ranking position, has remained humble even inquisitive curious as he comes and what we find is that jesus is ready to receive him but unlike jesus's knowledge nicodemus's knowledge is incomplete there is much for him to learn let's step in chapter three and see what happens now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." Now Nicodemus's words here imply that within the Pharisees, there must have been a small group at least that were willing to acknowledge that Jesus was some sort of new rabbi who was sent by God. It was a position that would not have been all too popular with the Sadducees who Jesus had just utterly offended in chapter 2 when he told them to tear down the temple, the temple that they loved and structured their lives around. This was the Sadducees. The Sadducees loved and built their lives around the temple and the Torah. The Pharisees loved and built their lives around the Torah and the prophets and the temple. Jesus was an equal offender of both. And he wasn't very well liked by either. Jesus, if you remember in John chapter 2, had just invited the destruction of the temple promising to resurrect it in a way that revealed its eternal purpose. It was also Jesus who was filling up or completely fulfilling the law, revealing its divine motive, even though his life and teachings were seen by many as incongruent with the law. Many who had authority and who claimed to know the law the best did not believe that Jesus was living according to the law. And as we come to discover, as as we explore and investigate the life of Jesus in the Gospels, there's something about the nature of truth, grace, and love that is all at once mysterious and liberating and beautiful and compelling. Jesus' approach, his posture, his words his actions, they're striking a chord, they're having influence with some of the religious leaders. How Jesus read, interpreted, and lived out the law looked and sounded very, very different than what was found within traditional Jewish religious structures. However, as this interaction unfolds, we find that though Nicodemus was willing to acknowledge and relate to Jesus as another rabbi or teacher, he was still trying to understand and relate to Jesus on his own terms. It is a habit that we're all still guilty of when we're a bit unsettled or disrupted by a new way of teaching or thinking. We can be like Nicodemus. We can even be like Nicodemus within our own inherited faith traditions. Our imaginations and our curiosity can grow rather dull and lifeless. Many of us have experienced this. Many of us who have been in Christ for many, many, many years have experienced seasons where perhaps the spark and sparkle of faith that once captivated our hearts and our imaginations begins to fade underneath the weight of all the empires that either we built or are built for us. We forget sometimes the early eagerness and energy and zeal of the Great Awakening, the quickening of our spirits that was generated by the work of God through the Holy Spirit. And and I think it's sad following our salvation. We are often far too quickly ushered into very systematized ways of thinking and rationalizing and interpreting our faith. And friends, this move is not always helpful. And it's one that's very subtly and sometimes even subversely moving us away from God-spoken and God-inspired to man-made, man-ordered, and man-directed. This is the system of religion and faith that Nicodemus is living in. He's trapped in a very systematized world of great Theological certainty. Make no doubt about it. The people in Nicodemus' position, they did not have many questions to be answered. They knew what they knew. All the laws ordered, interpreted, and followed just as such. Everything practiced and taught in a way that was perfectly pleasing to the pious... And highly religious. All while allowing those who lived and practiced pharisaical Judaism. To remain in complete and active rebellion to the God whom they thought they were honoring. That's disruptive to me. That's disruptive to them. Nicodemus' approach to Jesus here in John chapter 3. Reveals that his certainty is eroding all of these safely and carefully constructed walls were beginning to crack as he found himself confronted by jesus and the teachings of jesus and it's it's interesting nicodemus comes at night and he heaps all this praise on on jesus oh rabbi rabbi you must be a great teacher, for no one could do these works unless God was with them. A response to which Jesus does not even entertain, does he? He goes right on past it. Look at verse 3. Jesus is going to drive right to the heart of Nicodemus' problem. Jesus answers Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter. and high-ranking religious leader, Nicodemus would have prided himself in two things, knowing and doing. He was a man who would have been expected in his position to know a lot. Most likely, not most likely, in all reality, he had the Torah memorized. Imagine Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, having it memorized. Perfect knowledge of it. He would have been expected to know it. And then, with perfect knowledge of it, he would have been expected to act accordingly on this great amount of knowledge that he had. Jesus goes after both. He goes after both Nicodemus' knowledge and he goes after his ability. And Jesus' strategy is important because... It's revealing Nicodemus' blindness. Like many times in his ministry, Jesus would say, seeing they could not see, knowing they did not know, hearing they did not hear. Friends, from within ourselves or on our own efforts, we are wholly incapable of seeing God or making sense of Him. God has revealed Himself in all of his glory, in all of his wonder and complexity and mystery through the person of Jesus. And it is only through Jesus that we can come to know God in a real, significant, and life-giving way. I mean, we we capture a sense, a small glimpse into Nicodemus's rigidity. In his literalness about everything in his world, in response to Jesus' words. But Jesus was not a teacher who often employed the literal in his teaching methods, was he? In America, one of our realities that's cultural is we love literal thinking, literal teaching, things like that. Jesus didn't teach that way, did he? Very rarely. Rather, how does Jesus teach? He teaches in figures of speech, in parables, in illustrations, and mysteries, allowing the Spirit of God to work in giving and bringing knowledge and insight to those who heard and believed. Jesus goes to birth. But it's not the kind of birth that Nicodemus is prepared to understand. First, there's the physical, then the spiritual. One we can make sense of, the other is wholly mysterious. Both of these births confront the emptiness of human effort. Both births are important, but one has far greater implications related to our future life and eternity. Jesus is destroying Nicodemus' ability. Whether he believed that it's Through his heritage, or through his knowledge and understanding, or through his position as a Pharisee, or through his privilege as a member of the ruling council, none of it meant anything for what Nicodemus truly was in need of. How terrifying. Friends, this is terrifying. It's utterly unsettling. That a man could live and give his life to such a religious system that in the end, apart from Jesus, would be absolutely and utterly meaningless. I mean, imagine the turmoil that Nicodemus is facing. Everything he had thought, everything he had taught to others, all of it. Meaningless? A life building an empire on his own efforts. The towers of Babel. By which or through which we think we can attain to God emptiness. A chasing after the wind. And isn't it incredible that Jesus goes to the wind? high above us, out of our control. We can't control the wind. I've tried. I'm a sprinting coach. In track and field, a headwind is a terrible thing for a sprinter. Many a times, I wish I could just control the wind and turn it and put it at the back of my athletes. But I can't. Far beyond my effort to tame the wind. Oh, Nicodemus must be humbled. Can you imagine having such clarity in your life, all of a sudden shattered? The cloudiness, the fog. His response says it all, doesn't it? Verse 9. How can these things be? appropriate question how can these things be a question that comes when everything that we had thought or believed about ourselves or our belief system is being shaken and turned upside down it's a question that reveals that Nicodemus has much to consider he's realizing that perhaps he's not as certain as he thought about the nature of pharisaical Judaism As a teacher and a leader among people, could Nicodemus really have gotten it so wrong? Could he really have been this far off the mark? Jesus knows, right? The end of John chapter 2, Jesus knows. He knows what Nicodemus is thinking. He can sense, he can feel the doubt, the wrestling, the entangling of what is taking place in Nicodemus's mind. So in a way that only Jesus could do, he leans into the very question that's plaguing Nicodemus. You can almost hear it in Nicodemus' response in chapter nine. What have I taught? What have I believed in? What does it matter? How can this be? Jesus doesn't let him off the hook, does he? Jesus is good at not letting people off the hook. Verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus sure had thought that he understood these things, but now he was wholly uncertain about what he believed. Jesus continues in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There had been a collective witness that had grown to testify and speak to what they were witnessing as Jesus traveled and taught and ministered in the Galilean region. But the religious leaders had not been captivated or compelled by their testimony. There's this illusion of control or a need to feel in power that can be very addictive and a dangerous temptation to a person in any leadership position. And the Pharisees, to this point, had been unable to control Jesus or the influence of his ministry. They were unable to adequately explain or even by their authority constrain the power of Jesus. These earthly realities that the religious leaders were confronted with were also indicative of the spiritual or heavenly truths. Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is not held up in the hearts ...or the minds or the hands of man. From the dawning of creation, God has both held and given all that He desires to His creation... ...to be used for His good pleasure and purposes. We don't control our destinies. Our future is in the Lord's hands. We don't give of ourselves to find salvation... God gives of himself and makes salvation a right relationship with him available to those he loves through Christ alone. Just as we have no control over our own physical birth, so too do we have no control over our own spiritual birth. We didn't control our physical birth. I'm going to be born in 1981. In Lancaster County to Rick and Dawn Lenhart at Lancaster General Hospital. Sorry, Mom, I forgot what time I was born. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day, though. I know it was a Mother's Day present to you. It was May 12th. We don't have control over it. And in a very similar way, we don't have control over our spiritual birth either. And yet, Jesus still commands... In John 7, do we get confused by this? Do not marvel that I said what? You must be born again. But wait! You just said I don't have any control over it. Ah. We think that within this command, Jesus is telling us to do something. When instead... He's inviting us to see himself for who he really is. It's not about what we do. It's about seeing Jesus for who he really is. This is what Jesus is saying is most important. This is the key. And we see it in verse 13. Jesus says... No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about his divine nature here. He's taking aim at the title Nicodemus used with Jesus. Nicodemus will never see how things can be if he can't see Jesus for who he truly is. He's more than a rabbi. He's more than a teacher. Jesus is the divine son of man. And it is a disruptive and subversive title, son of man. Especially for Nicodemus. One who was part of a Jewish religious system. This title, Son of Man, had messianic connotations that were rooted in the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel. For the Jew then, when Jesus used this title, he was implying that he associated himself with messianic expectations. And in the mind of the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders, Jesus neither taught, nor did he think, nor did he act Anything like they thought the promised Messiah would. Jesus uses words with Nicodemus that Nicodemus, as an expert in the Old Testament scrolls, would have immediately connected with Jacob, who himself was later called Israel. In his vision of the latter, Jacob had seen angels ascending and descending, Jesus was the point of connection between the heavens and the earth. The true mediator. The one who could make a way for humanity to be made right with God. And the implications were not only for the Jews. Initially, yes, but now also the title Son of Man. It also struck at the very pride of the Roman Empire. At the time, the greatest empire ever known in the world. It was an empire of unimaginable reach and power with a military and a government that was unrivaled in any other part of the world. All glory in the Roman Empire belonged to Caesar. And Caesar's kingdom was to be eternal. That's what was believed by the people in the Roman Empire. That Caesar's kingdom was an eternal kingdom. People not only believed in that ideal, but they also laid down their lives it that Rome would never cease. Jesus suggests that another kingdom is coming, one with a sovereign king who was above, higher than Caesar. And as the king of God's kingdom, Jesus would rule and reign as Truly divine, and every knee would bow, and every tongue would confess that Jesus was Lord. Not Caesar. His humility and his sacrifice, the laying down of his life, it subverted all of the power systems of the Roman government. Systems that relied on domination and man-made hierarchical social structures. At the end of the day, friends, belief in the law and structure of Judaism, belief in the temple and its traditions, and belief in the ways and systems and powers of Rome all lead to death. Every one of them. Only seeing and believing Jesus for who he truly is Leads to life eternal. So Jesus continues. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus knew the reference to Jacob earlier in the ascending and descending. He certainly knows the reference to Moses and the people in the wilderness that Jesus is making here. For a religious leader who was an expert in the law, Jesus is removing all doubt that he's revealing himself to Nicodemus as the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world. And he is using, what's amazing here is that he's using the very thing which Nicodemus would have had the greatest knowledge of, the Torah. And he's using it to show how Jesus' life and ministry was taught and pointed to from the Torah. In the Numbers scroll of the Torah, the account goes that the people, again, were grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, so the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and many died as they were bitten and they succumbed to the poison the people turned to Moses they confess their sin both uh, sin that they have sinned against the Lord but they also confess that they sin against Moses so Moses then intercedes and asks the Lord to take away the snakes and God gives direction to Moses and he says make a poisonous snake put it on the pole and lift it up and when someone who is bitten looks at it that person will live and it was so the snake lifted in the wilderness gave life to all who had been bitten by the consequence of sin. This is messing with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was not anticipating this sort of encounter with Jesus on this evening. And Jesus knows how all of this is completely upending and turning over the tables of Nicodemus' comfortably held religious convictions. He's going to continue to show how this act of the Son of Man being lifted ultimately was a revelation, and is a revelation, of God's love for the world. Look at verse 16. We know this one, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the next two. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son. Of God. God's love for the world compels him to give his only son in order that whoever believes in him would find life. It's a significant statement on many levels. and For many reasons, it's one of the first, if not the first verse, that every one of us memorizes as a child. Some of us have it memorized in the King James, the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, and every other translation. We went to that many VBSs growing up. What it teaches is it teaches that the way to love is to give away. It's so countercultural to give. For God so loved the world that He gave. <laughs> and He didn't just give us a trinket. Oh, here you go. Here's a little token from my trip to heaven. Put this on your shelf. It's not at all what he did. He gave himself. The thing that was most precious. So that all who believed could find eternal life. Nicodemus was part of a religious group that believed they were giving to God. How do I do all this? Jesus is saying, God gave to you. In Nicodemus's world, you gave to God to get from God. But the scriptures teach us that God gives, that we might give ourselves for others, a broken and poured out way of life that ultimately glorifies God. And these verses, they don't just reveal the nature of generosity and, And grace and giving that is a part of love, but they expose our great need and inadequacy, our total dependence and need for a God who gives. Friends, we need what God gave, we need it. I need it. You need it. We all need it. He is a God who gives. He gives from the depths of His love. He gives sacrificially. He gives abundantly. He gives and He doesn't hold back. He shows us a better way. A way of love. And He doesn't stop there. Verse 17 just Soaked in another countercultural way of God. He doesn't give his own son to condemn, but rather to save. And we live in a world that loves and celebrates condemnation. We love it. It's all over the news, it's all over the media. We participate in it. Rather than finding ourselves captivated by and disciplined in the Scriptures, our culture disciples us to rejoice in the condemnation of others, soaking ourselves in the misguided and fool-hearted opinions of other people instead of being formed and having our lives shaped by God's Word. God says, I send my Son into the world. I give my Son to the world to save it, not to condemn it. Why? The answer is in the very next verse. First, because the one who believes is not condemned. Then, because the one who refuses to believe is already condemned because they live in unbelief. Friends, those who do not yet know Jesus, they don't need our condemnation, they don't need our judgment, our criticism. And our ridicule, our critical spirits and attitudes, they're already condemned. What they need is our love. What they need is the same love that God showed broken, poured out, sacrificial, servant hearted love. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a man that cared about a person's exterior or veneer. Everything had to look good on the outside. External actions and behaviors were everything. Salvation and righteousness in Nicodemus's mind, according to his inherited tradition, could only be attained through strict adherence to and practice of the laws and the rituals. It was through these practices that one could avoid condemnation and merit for themselves salvation and an eternal reward man looks at the outward appearance but where does god look the heart jesus is getting at nicodemus's heart we cannot see a person's belief we cannot see a person's genuine belief we can examine we can inspect or witness fruit of what someone might say is is genuine belief but even then our view of another person's fruit is limited and incomplete god's ways are different than the ways of nicodemus and the pharisees god gives and he gives to save those who are already condemned because we live or we were living in unbelief friends before jesus this was every one of us And I stand here today as a a man who is so thankful that there were people who took an interest in my life to point me to Jesus. That loved me enough to point me to Jesus. To help me. To redirect me when my life was going off course. To share truth. To love. To give of themselves. To lay down their lives. The judgment is already there. It's in verse 19. And it's interesting, as the most spiritual of men, the most spiritual of leaders in his day, verse 19 applies to Nicodemus. It's a warning. It's a warning that one can be very religious and even appear very spiritual while still living in darkness. Why has Nicodemus come to Jesus in the cover of night? What might this reveal about the nature of Nicodemus' heart and the nature of his own empire now laying in ruins as he's trying to make sense of Jesus? Look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus says to Nicodemus, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Friends, this is hard, but we have to hear it. We can be born into a Christian family, find ourselves brought into church as an infant all the way up through the adult years, doing and saying and thinking very Christianly about many things in this world and still be living in darkness. We can think that we have done enough, been good enough, said enough, cared enough, learned enough, or made done enough to make ourselves right with God, but we're fooling ourselves. Being raised in a Christian home is not belief. Practicing Christianity within a congregation is not belief. Having our theology approved by whoever our favorite pastor, theologian, or teacher is, is not belief. Getting a degree from a Bible college or Christian institution or university is not belief. Volunteering in our churches and communities is not belief. All of these things, as Jesus' words expose, can be good cover for a person like Nicodemus who's living in darkness. Condemned in their unbelief, knowing the weight of their sin, their own inability to save themselves, they do a lot of self determined or socially accepted good things to cover the guilt, the shame, and the inability. There is only one, friends, who is enough. There is only one way that is good enough. And it's not something that we do with our own hands and our own efforts. It's a person who's done the work for us and his name is Jesus. And that is it. Apart from Jesus, all of those other deeds eventually will be exposed for what they really are even if our friends and the world perceive them as good. True belief, friends. True belief is what Jesus is getting at here. And true belief is looking at Jesus and seeing him for who he really is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who was sent to seek and save sinners, the only one with the power to forgive, to heal, to give life, and to make us right with God. Belief in Jesus is seeing and acknowledging Jesus for who he truly is, not for who we want him to be or who we've created him to be within our own systems. Belief is seeing Jesus as the one and only true solution to solve our greatest problems of sin and death and friends i've said this before and i'll say it again this is a reality that all share every person that's born into this world is built born with the same two problems we have a terrible problem with sin and every one of us is going to face death and the, the gospel the good news tells us that there as we share those same two problems we also share the same one solution And that solution is not anything that we bring up from within ourselves. It's a solution that is given from God, by God, in the person of Jesus. And there is only one way to find salvation in this world, and it is through the name of Jesus. That's it. Seeing, recognizing, relating to Jesus as he truly is. That's belief, friends. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do we believe it? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do we believe it? This is the good news. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. And that God sent his son into the world to seek and save those who were dead. In their trespasses and sins. And to make a way unto life. Verse 21. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light. The one who practices the truth comes to the light. So that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been in God. How do we know that someone has seen and believed on Jesus for who he really is? That person practices the truth of their belief by living in the light. Later on in the same gospel, John 15, Jesus would say, Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's not an overstatement. The one who believes will walk in the light, practicing and proclaiming the presence and persistence of God with us wherever we go, and when, in whatever we do and friends this type of life it's a public declaration that this is the work of god it's not our own efforts it's god carrying us sustaining us empowering us and equipping us to live justly and righteously and effectively as salt and light in the world that he's established us in and called us to reach with the gospel. It's a world that loves darkness, friends, a world who apart from Jesus stands already condemned. So as I said before, they don't need to hear our condemnation. What this world needs is light and hope and love, the light, hope, and love of Jesus lived and shared and proclaimed by the children of God. Church, this is our calling It's our most important task. It's the way that others will see, hear, and accept Jesus for who he really is. It's what God uses to draw other people to himself so often. They'll know we are Christians, that we're followers of Jesus, that we're disciples of Christ by the way that we love and practice the truth. God is with us, friends, with great power, in great effect. Let's pray. Father, the testimony in John 3 convicts us all. Because in every one of us, there is a little piece that likes to hold on to the things that we do. In every one of us, there's a little piece that likes to take glory for things that you should get all the credit for. Lord, the good news is you've done it. You've been victorious. You've conquered sin and death through Jesus. Jesus. And that through a turning away of sin and confession, real belief, seeing Jesus for who He really is, submitting ourselves to Him, that that free gift, Lord, is available to each and every one. Each and every one who believes. Salvation belongs to you, Lord, and if there's a person here today that has not yet known you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, and in some way, you would reveal yourself to them in a way that would lead to salvation, that today might be the day that they see Jesus for who He really is, the Savior, your Son, the Son of Man, the promised Messiah the one who is enough, the one who is wholly adequate. Lord, that's a compelling vision. That's a compelling hope. It's one that can captivate us and carry us and sustain us through these difficult days here. Father, we want to give you praise and glory for what you do. And we thank you for Jesus.